just for all, uh, all of us, would you briefly uh, define uh, dispensationalism and covenantalism uh, and what you understand them to mean in the classic sense, and then what you mean when you say, but you hold to a progressive, you know, what is it that's changed and developed that it requires a, 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 another label? And we realize the limitations of labels, but they, they, do, they do serve a function. Can you do that? And we'll start from there. You want me to start? Uh, either one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great to be with you. Um, yeah, when you think of uh, covenant theology, right? I mean, normally you associate that with uh, coming out of, I mean, there's precursors of it before, but the mainline Reformation, post-Reformation, and what we normally associate with uh, Presbyterian and other Reformed traditions that then get tied to uh, doctrine of church, ordinances, infant baptism particularly, and other issues, right? So their understanding, uh, what, what I would say would be similar would be we'd see the importance of covenants, but so does progressive dispensationalism. But uh, they've tended to uh, structure the Bible in terms of uh, the covenant of works, which is picking up the strong emphasis on creation, Adam, and then uh, uh, test that's given, uh, probation, and so on in the garden. And then uh, disobedience uh, and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace becomes a larger theological category to then speak of the covenants, the biblical covenants, under the one rubric of the covenant of grace. And the tendency is, they don't always like you to say this, but the tendency is, is that they don't take seriously how the covenants unfold. So they generally, there's varieties, uh, within that one covenant of grace, there's uh, it's the same, same salvation, same experience of Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. There's not much change in terms of the substance, but the administration of the covenant is different. And then you tie it, you put in your various covenants in place, but usually it's a Mosaic administration and a New Covenant administration. And then out of that, Israel and the church... I mean, there may be slight differences, but they're pretty much similar in that Israel, people of God, constituted by believing, unbelieving entity, and then the church is similar, and so there's a kind of, the church is the new Israel, Israel is the church, right? So that's, you know, classic sort of covenant theology, and there's variations. Well, what we've done, and of course we've learned from dispensationalism as well, is that we've tried to say, no, I think covenants are the backbone of the Bible, yet we must do justice to all of the covenants, plurality, and so progressive would be used in the same way it's being used in progressive dispensationalism. In fact, we uh, took the term from them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of the progress of revelation, uh, that covenants are uh, the Bible's own way, right? I mean, it's obviously tied to God's relationship to us, but the Bible's own way of unfolding the one plan of God. So instead of the covenant of grace, we want to talk about the one plan of God worked out through the biblical covenants. And so that would be where we're going to see some differences with traditional covenant theology. All right. Yeah, let me, first of all, is this on? A, you can hear me okay? All right. 
Let me say, first of all, I'm a little uncomfortable with the association of the color blue and the word progressive. Uh, you know, just, uh, I mean, at least Steve got red, you know, with his progressive. So, uh, you know, that it, it, one has Feeling to... Feeling the burn. <laughs> one has to... Uh, to uh, be aware of how the term progressive is being used. Uh, uh, you know, when we came out with progressive dispensationalism, I got this uh, letter from Clark Pinnock. He said, uh, oh, he said, you guys are progressing. Have you progressed this far? <laughs> so, I said, no, we, we haven't quite done that. Um, but um, but the the issue, the term progressive had to do with, for us, from dispensationalism, with how the dispensations related to one another, to each other, through the canonical narrative, and then how they related to the consummation. The difference between progressive dispensationalism and classic dispensationalism is that uh, classical dispensationalism Look, a lot of people understand a lot of things by the word dispensationalism. One of the most difficult tasks is to try to define the term because the term is already defined in a lot of people's minds. It means a certain eschatology or certain eschatological convictions. I mean, I've written on this the, 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 the various ways that people have understood the term. But what it meant to the classical dispensationalists was that there are two stories in the Bible, there are two peoples of God, and there's a duality of redemptive consummation. There's a heavenly and an earthly. A heavenly people and an earthly people. And that these are revealed in the history of the Bible in different dispensations. That one dispensation is an earthly one. One dispensation is a heavenly one. And what was very important to them was to distinguish the dispensations. They like to use uh, the verse from Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. So you distinguish the dispensations by determining whether it is dealing with the heavenly people or the earthly people. And these have no relationship to one another. And consequently, the dispensations have no relationship to one another. Okay? They're like silos you know, following one another. Progressive dispensationalism, however, argues that there is one story, one narrative, and it culminates in one people who are made up of a multi-particularity of ethnes and nations and, and so on and individual persons. But there's a unity in that consummation plan of God. So in one sense, it's it's quite distinct from traditional dispensationalism on that point. On the other hand, it draws from traditional dispensationalism the concern for the integrity of ethnic, national, territorial Israel in the purpose and plan of God. And there are eschatological aspects that it shares in common, uh, although it sees you know, a little bit of difference in the way they're articulated. Some people have said, well, it sounds a little bit like what George Ladd was trying to do in the, um, in the unity of the kingdom idea. Progressive dispensationalism benefited from the work of Ladd, as all evangelicals did. But it's not the same uh, in that 
it does emphasize the integrity of ethnic, national, territorial Israel. And there are some other features that differ from LAD2. So there's a similarity and difference. And that's where the term progressive came from. It was not a political theory. <laughs> it had to do with uh, the way the dispensations move through biblical history. Well, you, uh, <clears throat> you kind of segued and kind of covered some of the things that I was going to ask for the next question. Because I have had the opportunity of hearing both of you speak now twice. And uh, both of you do make some type of reference uh, to the notion of inaugurated eschatology. And so, um, can you, one, you've, you've already started by talking a little bit about George Eldon Ladd. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your understanding of what inaugurated eschatology is and isn't? Uh, and maybe even talk a little bit about the development within evangelicalism. I'm thinking now of Russ Moore's book on the kingdom and uh, how he argues that inaugurated eschatology has uh, played a significant role in our thinking over the last 30, 40 years. Um, you could, if you disagree with his thesis or you tweak it, go ahead and do that too. Could you speak to that question about inaugurated eschatology? Uh, either one of you take it and start first. Well, I mean, I... Last November at ETS, I gave a gave a presentation on it uh, on the use of inaugurated eschatology in evangelical theology. So it's it's something that we all agree on, supposedly, <laughs> in that we all affirm it already, not yet, so on. But the way it gets worked out is quite interesting uh, because it gets worked out tied to the larger theological systems. Right, so that, um, for instance, um, in uh, we'll just we'll start off with say covenant theology. So say at Jeremiah thirty-one, right? So they'll say uh, Jeremiah thirty-one seems to be speaking about in the future there's going to be this transformed people uh, that will be new, that will be regenerate, that will not be um, like Israel was in mixed group. But that's only in the eschaton, right? In the already, uh, the church is still comprised of believing, you know, believers and unbelievers, you and your children, and so then you start saying, well, what about how does how does the forgiveness of sins work here, right? And and is that something that is uh, well a little bit in in the already, but you know, there's still a not yet to it. Well, so they have to pick and choose various elements of that, or the Sabbath command they will say, well, in the already, the Sabbath command from the Ten Commandments is still in force, tied back to creation, but in the not yet, it'll be salvation rest. And so you say, well, okay, how's inaugurated eschatology working here? So, um, and I think uh, I would disagree with some of how it gets worked out in some of the dispensational views as well. So for my view on inaugurated eschatology, inaugurated eschatology is crucial in how fulfillment comes uh, by Christ in terms of the new era, but that, uh, the way you work it out will depend upon how you understand the Old Testament's unfolding. So these plot vectors, but for me, going through the covenants. <laughs> uh, and how you think the prophets are looking forward. And what I would try to, uh, to argue here is that through the biblical covenants, right, there is a storyline that's unfolding. Uh, that they are building on one another. So I'm not sure if we actually agree on that. But, I mean, in the sense of they're building, they're being epitomized, ultimately, the Davidic covenant that's taking 
Israel and the Abrahamic seed and all the way back to Adam in that covenant. And uh, the prophets then, post-Davidic, are looking to the future, and they're looking to the new age that's coming, the coming of the Lord through the king, uh, who will bring kingdom, judgment, salvation, spirit, temple, restoration of Israel, I mean a whole host of things, that then I would say in the New Testament, all of that is now here, but not yet, right? So it's not just certain aspects of it. It's not just the spiritual aspects, and then, oh, well, we're going to have the literal or maybe physical later. Now, obviously, you have to work out, say, the new, that's why I mentioned new creation. Yes, 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 obviously, we have the place, the new creation that's created in the future. Uh, yet, the new creation is here now, not just spiritually, but in Christ it's here, his incarnation, his resurrection, and yes, you can say spiritually in the church, but it's already here in that sense. So there's some in principle here in him, yes, and then you have to let the New Testament unpack how it will ultimately be consummated, but I would say the, you know, what the Old Testament looked, the kingdom, the spirit, uh, salvation, judgment, our justification is already in our eschatology. The end time verdict is rendered now, even though we'll wait until the end. So in principle, what the prophets look forward to has now come, including, of course this is where we'll differ, on the restoration of Israel. But the restoration of Israel has now come in Christ to the church, right? And that's now occurring, and then there will be the final consummation of it. So that's how I would understand inaugurate eschatology. So it's not enough to say already, not yet. All agree on that. But now you need the specifics that are going to be eventually tied to uh, how you think the Old Testament is unfolded and then brought to fulfillment in the New. So. Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, uh, most evangelicals do agree on the already, not yet. There are some who, who don't. But most do, and uh, Russ Moore's book was uh, making an observation on uh, something that had come together and was being manifested in the early 90s in uh, evangelicalism at the, remember at the Evangelical Theological Society, I think it was 91 or 92, there was uh, a presentation by Craig Blomberg on um, which he uh, was observing the fact that we had evangelicals, whether dispensationalists or non-dispensationalists, all speaking about the inaugurated of the kingdom, and he said, "You know, this is a, this is a kind of a key moment, you know, here that there's, there's this, you know, um, kind of agreement here on, on the kingdom to a certain extent." And um, that had followed several years of presentations um, that we had developed in the dispensational study group with a kind of a dialogue between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists. But um, whereas we do talk about inaugurated eschatology and, and need to, the older dispensationalists could not, would not, definitely you know, refused to use that kind of language. Uh, because of their two peoples concept. The kingdom belongs to the earthly people, and this is not that dispensation, so it cannot be inaugurated. But progressive dispensationalists, we're talking about it. But we would disagree on the issue of what is inaugurated. I would not say that everything is inaugurated. Uh, inauguration does not mean that every aspect of the kingdom has been inaugurated. 
what has been inaugurated is what has been revealed as inaugurated. The resurrection of the dead has not been inaugurated. Jesus has risen bodily from the dead, but we do not have an inaugural experience of the resurrection. And what's key here is to understand that there is no resurrection without the bodily resurrection. The resurrection means a bodily resurrection. And so Paul says Hymenaeus and Alexander are in error saying that the resurrection has already occurred. Uh, That has not been inaugurated. The day of the Lord has not been inaugurated, to call it according to 2 Thessalonians 2. The day of the Lord has not yet come, Paul says. Okay, It would have to have come, at least in inaugural form, if it has been inaugurated. It hasn't. There are certain eschatological features that are not here. There are certain things that are here and those are the things we need to focus on. There is a form of the kingdom. That's the key uh, thing. There, you know, Paul can say in Colossians 1 that you have been transferred into the kingdom of his son. That's a present reality. And the interdispensational discussions that took place over progressive dispensationalism, some of them revolved around that verse. Uh, the kingdom is present. You know, here in this sense, the picture that you get in Ephesians 2 of Christ who is exalted on high above all authority, the, the continual use of Psalm 110 verse 1 in the New Testament points to the inauguration. And Peter, using that Psalm uh, 110.1 in the speech in Acts 2 where he refers to the Davidic promise in Psalm 132, indicates that this is an inauguration of that Davidic covenant promise. So certain things have begun, but there are things, I would say, there are things that are still yet to be manifest, and we have to look at what the Scripture says is manifest and what's not. Um, we're going to take questions uh, from uh, the the audience here in just a moment. Do we have a camera ready, or excuse me, the, the microphone ready? Uh, so th- uh, if you've got questions... Uh, just let us know. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna ask one more question uh, from uh, the, uh, these two gentlemen, and then we'll we'll open up the floor. Uh, are there certain things that you heard in uh, the presentation of the other that you'd want to make an observation or comment about, uh, either to to uh, say, you know, well, you, you know, my position was slightly mischaracterized, or uh, I would. Love to hear you talk more about. You know, in other words, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to interact with each other's presentation, and uh, take it and do with do with that as you will. Uh, and and so, uh, whatever question or comment or observation you might have, uh, who wants to go first? Yeah, I mean, I'll, since I've been going first, uh, well, I mean, I think both presentations were uh, obviously aware of the other view, but trying to present each presentation on its own, right, for the most part. So um, there are there were maybe comments made that I'm thinking, is he thinking I'm saying that or is somebody else saying that and, and so on. So, you know, that would have to go on. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm struck with, and we've had this conversation, Craig and I, before, um, about the end, right, the consummation. And uh, at, e- at ETS, we sat down and, and sort of you, if you go from the consummation and what's it look like in the end, um, there's, there's a lot of similarities there, but uh, I'm not 
convinced, and then if I were to be convinced, it would demand a whole changing of everything else that goes back. So, so in, in terms of the consummation, right, um, the idea of nations, right, so I have no problem with peoples from every tribe, nation, people, tongue, to make it, I think what you're saying is you have ethnic, national, territorial Israel in the land, in the new heavens and new earth, um, and then the nations as nations surrounding them, mm-hmm. right, type of thing. So that's, and that's holism. You see, I just say, well, I've got it just as holistic <laughs> in the sense that it's grounded in creation, grounded in the rule over uh, the Edemic mandate fulfilled by Christ brought to us. We rule with Christ. We don't lose our maleness, femaleness, background, whatever that is. I mean, I, I'm dual Canadian-American, so I'm not sure if I'm Canadian in the new heavens and earth or American in the new heavens and earth. Uh, what does that even look like, uh, the problem? And I don't think the book of Revelation, uh, which gives you that kind of vision of the end, is clear like that in the sense of, uh, that kind of vision of the future. I mean, what what does uh, the new heavens and new earth look like other than it's a new creation, but how is it divided up? Is there maps of, you know, the old United States or what are Assyrians? Or I mean, there's a lot of things where you sort of say, okay. Now, it seems to me what's going on here is um, that vision of the end is being driven by something, right? Or at least... It's assuming something that has to then be worked out in terms of the end, which is ethnic, national, territorial Israel. Right? So there has to be, the assumption would have to be that there has to be something distinct, separate, different. And I'm trying to pick my words because obviously you, you hold to one people of God, one plan of salvation. Christ has brought all the promises to pass, so obviously we all agree on that. So you don't want to... You don't want to say uh, you're really holding the two peoples of God here or something like that. Um, so, But there's something different that Israel as an ethnic national people receive different than believing Gentile nations so that something's different, right? And at least that land is different, but there seems to be more prerogatives or privileges or something and that then, uh, if that's the case, you then have to work back and say, um, uh, this one new man, this church, of course, but then what, what the church you, you mention as um, the unity, it's, um, I think in other places, illustration, this present times, having the spirit of what the nations will be like, but I can't get over the fact that the church is... Yes, a people, but it's a kingdom. Uh, it's an, it's the holy nation. I mean, that's the way it's described. It is the people of the new creation that lasts forever. So you may have nationalities within it, but they have the same inheritance. I mean, even Galatians three, the promises plural to Abraham, you and seed is, is picked up from Genesis seventeen, where the land is there. The inheritance given to Believing Jews, believing Gentiles in the church because of what Christ has done seems to be they have not just the same salvation but the same privileges, prerogatives, inheritance, promises, and so on. So that's why I don't see the end the way you're seeing it. I would say there's a lot in common. We're all there. 
living in new heavens and new earth, so all of that's the same. I just don't see all the nations uh, the way it is. And then in order for that to work, I would have to then read you know, the whole concept of what the church is in the New Testament, then ultimately how Christ fulfills the promises and so on and so on and so on, and then not seeing um, uh, Israel... Uh, ethnic national Israel in terms of what we're trying to argue, the storyline that goes, they are a subset of Adam. Uh, and so there are some of the differences that, you know, it goes back to the storyline, it goes back to how the New Testament views the church and so on. And Your question or comment you'd have, or if you want to respond to that, and then whatever else you want to go. Yeah, uh, I just throw out a few things. Um, one is uh, what one does have to observe is the fact the use of the word kingdom through New Testament theology and the way in which kingdom appears as a theme over and over. Look at the book of Acts, for example, uh, where even at the end in Acts 28, he's still talking about the kingdom. And the question is, what is, you know, this kingdom? Uh, and, um, and what I'm saying is that the kingdom is the primary theme. Uh, most of the discussion has been, well, Israel, church, and so on. But if you bring in the kingdom as the theme by which Israel and the church find their identity, they find it in that kingdom relationship. That's the key thing. So um, the... Um, I guess I, maybe I could just, for the sake of time, ask a question in response. Uh, you know, my concern with progressive covenantalism is that there seems to be this razor in the hermeneutic that is uh, eliminating uh, this feature that, you know, that progressive dispensationalism is drawing attention to. And let me take a text as an example. So Isaiah 49, of course, is very important uh, for the typology in progressive covenantalism because Christ is the new Israel. Well, this is the text in Isaiah 49 where he says, you know, uh, he calls, you know, the servant Israel, okay? On the basis of that text, then uh, progressive covenantalism develops the typology of Christ as the Israel, the new Israel. However, that same text says that he will bring Israel back to God and also be a light to the Gentiles. So how is there an Israel-Gentile distinction there that's different from the servant who's Israel? But then it goes further in that he, it goes on to say that he will be a covenant for the people to restore the land. How does that feature get developed in progressive covenantalism? It seems to me that that feature gets cut out in a hermeneutic that has homogenized the uh, fulfillment of the promise in a singular person that ends up with a homogenous people. Um, as far as Israel being a particular people with a particular place... That doesn't seem to me any more problematic in the consummation than Matthew 19, where Jesus says this person will rule over, you know, these cities and that person over that cities. There are places of inheritance in the kingdom. Everybody's not in the same place, but they all have the inheritance of the kingdom. 
how do you resolve that? It seems to me that there's a multi-particular nature of the kingdom in order to resolve those features, but that would be my concern coming back to progressive covenantalism. Oh, this is great. Uh, <laughs> uh, questions that you would have, if you would, raise your hand, and then up here at the front, Jake's got the microphone. Uh, and then say your first name at least, and then state your question, please. Yeah, my name is Clint, and I'm wondering how each of you would treat the uh, the kingdom parables. So, say you're you're at a church and you're preaching, you know, some of the kingdom parables from Mark four. Like, w- w- what are some of the different ways that you guys would would preach that, or are there? I don't know. I mean, uh, if I'm preaching it, first of all, I want to do justice to the Gospels as Gospels in the sense that uh, I would argue that the Gospels are books that are first and foremost um, Christological in terms of identifying who this Messiah is from the Old Testament, bringing the new age to pass. And so as Christ now comes as the fulfillment of the old, he is bringing the kingdom in himself. So what you were saying before about the coming of the kingdom in the king, yes, that's he in his very uh, person and ultimately the work that will culminate at the end of the Gospels in terms of the cross and resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit, the rule and reign of God that the Old Testament has looked forward to, uh, the uh, putting, um, uh, uh, and also I want to say you can't understand kingdom apart from covenant relationships. Right? So that's another probably difference. Uh, yet he is announcing that that has now come in him, and he is calling people to enter that by faith in him. Uh, yet there's also then the work that is still has to take place, but it's laying out for the new age that's dawned, uh, what he is uh, bringing to pass, uh, the people of the kingdom, what it looks like, and how it's ultimately, as the Gospels unfold, going to be grounded in his death, resurrection, obedience, for us that uh, brings this to pass. Yet there is the future of the not yet, that we, the kingdom is here, yet it's not yet in its fullness. Uh, but the, we are the people of the kingdom, the church. We enter that kingdom by repentance and faith, and all of that is you know, unpacked in terms of the individual parable you're looking at. But he's announcing the dawning of, he, the king is here, right? Uh, the, what the prophets look forward to is now here in him, and the new era has begun uh, and it will be you know obviously grounded in his cross and resurrection can i do the exposition from matthew 13 instead of mark 4 okay uh there's more parables in matthew 13 and they're tied together by the theme the mysteries of the kingdom when he says to you is made known the mysteries of the kingdom and what I see in these mysteries of the kingdom is he's explaining to them what really amounts to the inaugurated period between his ascension and his return. Um, the kingdom has, he's already indicated in Matthew 12 that the kingdom is present in his own activity. But in the parables, he's talking about a manifestation of the kingdom that's unexpected. It's, it's a mystery. And what is this? Well, 
the wheat and the tares is the key, in my opinion, to the entire group of parables uh, that follow. The first, the soils, then the wheat and the tares. And the wheat and the tares indicates there is a time coming when there are citizens of the kingdom in the world alongside the sons of the evil one. And that was not predicted in Daniel. It was not predicted in the great pictures, you know, of, um, of many of the kingdom prophecies. But they will grow side by side, and when he comes, when the Son of Man comes, he will remove the tares from his kingdom. That shows that it's already there. That's the inaugural form. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom. That's the next phase of the kingdom. Okay. What you have then is the, the rest of the parables indicate uh, how it begins. You have the mustard seed. You have the leaven. There's a small beginning. The end result, it's organically related to what's coming in its fullness. But it has a smaller beginning. You have um, the treasure, the pearl and the treasure. Uh, the kingdom is worth everything. And there are people who are looking for it. And they would give everything to have it. It's worth everything. And there are people who are going to come into the kingdom that were not looking for it. But it's worth everything to possess. I mean, these, this is something that can be preached to people, you know, today about this kingdom. It's worth everything that you have. And the judgment that ends, there's going to be a judgment at the end that, that leads from this phase to the kingdom in its fullness. So I would see that as primarily dealing with those, uh, a lot of them are dealing with this inaugurated period that we have come into since the ascension. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I would not uh, do that um, in the sense of, I mean, obviously it's inaugurated. I think what's wrestling with instead of wheat and tares, I mean, it's picking up Noahic realities in the sense that since the Noahic covenant will go to the end, there's always going to be the kingdom of man, the people of this world with the, king, the people of God. I mean, that's been there from Noahic. But what's expected, I mean, I think this is John the Baptist, what he's wrestling with. When the king comes, when Messiah comes, they expect uh, from the Old Testament that you know, everything's going to end, right? There's going to be salvation, judgment, all of these expectation. Why isn't all of this happening? And he's saying there's delay. I have come. I'm doing my work. It's picking up first and second coming, I think. Uh, that is speaking of uh, the transition that's going through time, that the kingdom is now here. You enter it. It is precious. It's You uh, give everything to enter it. But uh, I do not see it in exactly that same way. It's, it's, it's wrestling with why is the end not here? Well, there's a first coming and second coming. The kingdom is here, but it's still not yet. That's why yeah, I wouldn't take it back to Noah because the kingdom theme in the Gospels and the preaching of Jesus starts out as a future kingdom. And it's from that that the inaugurated kingdom takes its, uh, its, its cue in my opinion. So the mysteries are the mysteries of the kingdom that's coming, not something that's always been here. That's where we would differ. Well, yeah, let me just clarify with Noah in the sense of what I'm saying with the Noahic. The Noahic covenant isn't just sort of, you know, 
God's made some promises that he's not going to flood the earth again or so, is that there's something, you, there's something in advance on the Noahic Covenant. It's in a post-fall situation. We know from the Noahic Covenant until the end of time, God's people and the people of this world are going to be simultaneously existing. That's what, so there's a, a sense of two kingdoms that come out of Noahic Covenant. Now, because that's the case, then when you have the prophets looking forward to the coming of, of the king, there would be the expectation that the end would be the end would come that uh, that uh, everything would happen at once, but it doesn't, and so that's that's why I'm picking up Noah. So I'm not tying it directly to Noah. <laughs> Very good question, Clint. Uh, next question we would have, uh, yes, right here, and then after that we'll do the. Here. Say your first name, your question. Uh, my name is David, and I'm curious how each of you would deal with uh, some of the content of Romans nine in particular with regard to an ethnic, national, and territorial Israel. Um, and for reference, uh, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, in verse 6, and uh, not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but, and then he's quoting, uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named and following. So what would you do with uh, Romans 9? I'll do it quick, and then if you want to follow up, you can. Romans 9, 6, those passages are talking about a subset within Israel. So you have physical Israel, and then you have a subset within Israel. That's the remnant theme, which is developed then on into chapter 11. So there's an Israel that will inherit the promises because they are Jews and Israel of the faith of Abraham. There are those who are not. And this was seen in Isaiah 63, sorry, in Isaiah 66, when he talked about the fact that that some of them will be eliminated. Not everybody is going into that kingdom. Yeah, no, I, I would take 9 to 11. I mean, obviously, as a unit, Paul's wrestling with, uh, and crucial, right? So he's finished with the great sureties and uh, confidence of the gospel. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yet, what do you do with his fellow uh, countrymen, people of the covenants, promises, and so on, that many, not all, uh, obviously Paul's an example of one who did come to faith, and Peter and the disciples, and many, uh, Acts 2 and, and so on, uh, but many seem to have missed the Messiah, right? So that's what he's wrestling with, and the answer that he seems to give in chapter 9 uh, is that not all Israel is Israel, there's an election, so within uh, Israel, there is, and I agree, there's a remnant, uh, but that doesn't, just because you're part of the nation of Israel in the old, that's why it's structured that way, that doesn't guarantee salvific benefit. Uh, one still must repent, believe, and so on, and uh, this is why I think the church is not exactly the same as Israel structured of old. That's a covenant theology issue. So he's saying, not all Israel is Israel, and he then goes through the uh, elective purposes. He, and he couples that with the end of 9 through 10. Uh, why did some Jews not believe? Israelites not believe? Well, they, they didn't exercise faith, right? So you have both sovereignty and freedom being brought beautifully together in chapter 9 and 10. So it looks like, all right, well, what about uh, Israel? And uh, he, in, in my view, there's, I mean, there's a number of interpretations of all Israel will be saved, and how uh, chapter 11 works out. I mean, I think the most viable, um, uh, not uh, pu putting N.T. Wright's view and others to the side in the sense of this is just simply the church, all Israel, seems to me to refer to ethnic national Israel uh, in that context. 
so that uh, the all Israel will be, um, doesn't mean every single person in the nation, but a huge number of, of Jewish people either are saved uh, in the end, right? So there's a mass bringing of Jews to faith in their Messiah, or you have others uh, that will see it as through this entire age, right? So ethnic national Jews coming to believe in Messiah. I, at this point, uh, uh, work with more of the mass conversion in the future. Um, I, both views are, are very strong, but I work with that in terms of just the overall argument and so on. Uh, but that doesn't entail, there's nothing about, now you, the restoration, ethnic national Israel's territory, everything, would have to be brought in on other grounds. And of course, Dr. Blaze is going to say, well, that's the entire storyline. And I'm going to say, well, I don't think that's the entire storyline. So uh, there's nothing in there that you have to be careful that you don't impose uh, the whole understanding of Israel and saying, with many Jewish people coming to saving faith, that entails then a distinct promise or separate promise or certain territory as a nation. I would say they're coming to faith in Messiah, in the church. They're part of the church of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And so now we're back to uh, you know, what the end looks like. But uh, Romans 9 to 11 is a crucial chapter that Paul's wrestling with God's faithfulness and uh, his, his keeping uh, you know, uh, his promises in the past. And, of course, that'll raise the issue of speech act theory and performative. Maybe we get into some of that. But uh, that's how I would take Romans 9 to 11. Right. Move to 11. I was great with everything <laughs> you said until but. Uh, everything was great up to that point. I, I agree with uh, Romans 11:26 is about uh, you know a conversion of Israel, and I, and I would also see that as a mass conversion. So that's very important with respect to Romans 9:6. The situation there, you know, vis-a-vis what's coming in the future in Romans 11:26. And Levin develops this point about the remnant in, in a beautiful language where he says, you know, if the if the if the portion you know, it, it was holy. If the lump was holy, what about the whole? You know, dough. What about you know if the root? What about the whole? And so then he's moving to the whole, and he's looking for a uh, a mass conversion here of uh, Israel, and that's where Israel comes then into that eschatological picture. So, thank you, David, for your question. Say your first name and state your question. Yes. Hello, my name is Corey, and uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Blazing and Dr. Wellam, for being here for your lectures, your writing ministry. They appreciate it. Uh, my question is for both of you, and the question is, um, what law did Jesus keep on our behalf? So. Well, I would, I would uh, say that he comes born under the law, uh, so he uh, obeys the old covenant laws that are given, and those laws ultimately are reflective of ultimately God's moral demand that's placed upon his creatures, yet they are shown in specific covenant obligations, right? So when you think of um, the issue of law, Israel is given a covenant, uh, and why they've come for many reasons. One, to bring forth Messiah. Uh, one, to show what covenant relationship looks like, what it means to be a kingdom of priests, and so on and so on and so on. Also to increase sin, and the old covenant does that as well. But they are to obey, uh, obedience to God is expressed under that covenant obligation, and so he comes under that law and obeys it. He obeys it for us. 
But, um, you know, bearing it for us under that, he also obeys it for people outside of that covenant as well, because I would take that um, the nation of Israel is like a huge pilot project of given special privileges, given the law of God in specific ways, and so on, and uh, they also illustrate uh, edemic sin in the sense of uh, specific commands that are violated uh, and disobedience, but Christ comes under it and obeys, and by keeping that, he satisfies and meets uh, God's own righteous demand, which is his own righteous demand as well. Uh, Corey, uh, do you have a specific text in mind before I give an answer to that? Um, yeah, I trying to think of one right off the bat, but just thinking of just the, you know, what theologians call the, the act of obedience of Christ and his, okay. his righteousness and what, you know, what is that righteousness? What law is that righteousness that he's keeping? For? Right. Well, you know, in John's gospel, he says, you know, which of you accuse me of, you know, breaking the law? And he tells them, you all break the law, but nobody accuses him of breaking the law. He kept the law. I mean, he was not a sinner. And so he, he, he was um, a law keeper. Of course, the problem was that in Matthew you know, 12 and 15, particularly Matthew 15, they bring up the point that you don't keep the traditions, see, of the elders. That was a dispute. Which Torah are we talking about? <laughs> And he's talking about the Torah given through Moses. And by that time, Torah has already expanded to include all kinds of things. And that's the dispute then between Jewish believers and Jesus. And But your question is, what did he keep for us? Well, uh, he came for us. You know, so, I mean, he, he kept the law. Uh, but even more so, what Paul points out is that he took the curse of the law upon himself for us. I mean, if all he did was keep it, we, we wouldn't be benefited, but for the fact that he took the curse, that's what brings us freedom. And then he gives us the Spirit. But it is very important in those reform discussions of active obedience and then coming down to people today and believers today to note what was said in Acts 15. Gentiles are not Jews. And so the law was not imposed upon the Gentiles in the way that it was upon the Jews. There were Jewish believers in Jesus who didn't keep the traditions. Some of them did keep the traditions by choice, but, but the Gentiles were not required to come under that Mosaic law in that same way. That's Acts 15. So that whole theology needs to consider all that as it goes to develop its concept you know, of the obedience of Christ and its effect on us. My opinion. Let me. I mean, just let me. Just, let me just quickly jump in if it's okay. Um, yeah, Acts 15's come up. I disagree. I mean, in terms of what's going on here in Acts 15, it's not that Gentiles remain sort of Gentiles don't come under Mosaic law. What, I mean, what's happening here? This is why I think you've got to think covenantally. I mean, this is a covenantal shift that's taken place, so that the Jewish people, you know, they can keep the Old Testament law if they want and still. You know, keep the food laws and this type of thing. But once they say, you must come under it, right? Apostle Paul will say, and the New Testament will say, you've denied the faith. You're... So that Paul, 
you can keep it for, I mean, Paul can have someone, Titus, circumcised and so on, but not because it's covenantally obligatory anymore. Uh, that covenant as a covenant, even for the Jew, uh, is no longer obligatory as a covenant, I would argue. They are now under the new covenant. This is what First Corinthians 9 is about. Paul can say, as a Jewish man, he can say, I'm not under the law. And under the law clearly is a reference to the old covenant. Uh, it's not a, a apart from the law. All right? I'm in law with Christ. He's under the new covenant. Right? So I think what's going on in Acts 15, the reason why the Gentiles aren't coming under the Mosaic laws, the Mosaic laws come to his end. And if you want to now keep the food laws and do a few things like that for your own uh, sake, go for it. But that is no longer covenantally obligatory. So I think, I mean, that's how I would take what's going on. It's a covenantal shift that's going on at the Jerusalem Council, and they're wrestling with now what's the new man, the church, the, now that they're under the new covenant, what is now obligatory for both Jew and Gentile, and what's adiaphora, and what's covenantally they're under, and so on. Active obedience of Christ. I mean, this is where uh, I say with covenant theology, because they tie this to uh, covenant of works, Right? Um, I'm nervous with coveted works. I mean, I, I, I agree with the idea of, of, of God demanding wholehearted, full, we could say perfection, but total obedience, right? What else would God demand from his creatures? Right? Uh, yet, I think the covenant, what we call the covenant of creation, which I do think is there, um, is more robust. It's not just simply uh, subsequent to creation, God gives a command, and now that's the covenant of works, and they either violate it, merit uh, some kind of uh, righteousness, and then no, the very the very creation, right? It made an image that we're related to God, we're related to the world. That's what's bound up with the covenant of creation. Uh, we uh, God demands uh, absolute obedience from us, total devotion, wholehearted commitment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbors yourself. Really, is tied to the covenant, right? And, uh, and it gets worked out in the covenants. Uh, Adam disobeys Israel's covenant. The laws, they're specific to that covenant, no doubt. But they're reflective of God's ultimate demand upon them. Christ comes under that covenant and he obeys that covenant, which is also fully uh, being devoted, loving uh, the Father, loving one another wholeheartedly, and uh, his, I mean, he's sinless, but his obedience and then his death and substitution is what brings about our salvation. So that's what I would say. Yeah. And just uh, the reason for bringing up Acts 15 is because traditional covenantalism sees the Mosaic law, the law, as binding on believers today, but they modify it. Uh, because they say the typological features have passed away, but the law remains. The reason for bringing up Acts 15 is the distinction that's being made in Acts 15 between Jewish and Gentile believers with respect to law. And so he's not saying that, hey, everybody is to obey the law, but remember that the typological features are passing away. What progressive covenantalism is saying is that the law as a whole has ended and has been superseded by the law of the new covenant. And I'm basically in agreement with that. But one does need to note that what's going on with Paul is a little more complicated than 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, because if... You know, we're all evangelicals who believe in inerrancy, and consequently the Paul of Acts is the same Paul who wrote the epistles. 
And the Paul in Acts, according to Acts 21, uh, goes and makes an offering in the temple to show that it's not true that he's teaching the Jews to disobey the law. And not only that, but he says on three or four occasions in Acts that he follows the teachings, even uses the word traditions of the, of the Jews. And then he also says that everything he does, he does with a clear conscience. I mean, some people say, well, he's doing that just to, you know, get by. No, he does all this with a clear conscience, which is an issue right now in Messianic Judaism with respect to Jewish believers in Jesus, with respect to law and Torah features that are not imposed on Gentiles and so on. That is a road that I suggest we not go down because that would take up too much time. <laughs> but, you know, I do agree that, you know, there is a change here in New Covenant, you know, for believers today. Good question, Corey. Uh, next question I see here. Say your name, Greg. And uh, state your question. It's Gregory Lamb. Um, I would echo Dr. Keith Lee and uh, this gentleman's, you know, compliments to you guys, stimulating lectures. <clears throat> My question is kind of open to, to both of you. Um, you know, human flourishing uh, has been a, a very hot topic in, in theological circles. Um, you know, you have Jonathan Pennington at Southern, you have uh, the Yale School with their Center of Human Flourishing, Miroslav Wolf and others. Um, I really appreciated uh, both the give and take, and I think it's a wonderful example, by the way, of how we can have disagreements theologically, but still come together to sharpen one another in a rhetoric manner. So I thank you for that also. But, you know, I appreciated the, uh, the lesser to the greater argument with regarding typology, and I know that Dr. Blazing disagreed with some. I think you said it's not an engine to escalation, so I appreciated both perspectives on that. Um, you know, with the a fortiori, Calva Omer, Lester de Greater. So, how would you, <clears throat> first of all, how would you um, say that human flourishing came about um, in the Old Testament? We have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Torah keeping uh, seems to be the primary uh, way that they pursued human flourishing. Was it through law keeping? But then you have texts like Genesis fifteen eight that Abraham, you know, uh, he in faith, his faith was counted as righteousness. And so you have kind of this, um, not necessarily an antinomy, but 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 you had uh, some different, uh, some complexity there, uh, some maybe some tension uh, with that. And then uh, I think both of you mentioned the text in Joel chapter two, verses twenty-eight through twenty-nine, which I thoroughly appreciated. The emphasis on the Holy Spirit, which we see obviously picked up in Acts two. Um, would you say then, uh, and I know again that we can't monolithically, according to Dr. Blazing, say that there's always an escalation of the lesser to the greater regarding this, but would you, would you think that it would be fair to say that we do see uh, a kind of a, a greater progression of flourishing in terms of Joel 2, 28 through 29 being realized with the spirit-filled living uh, in Christ um, that we see in Acts 2 and, and throughout the New Testament. Well, yeah, the, the issue of human flourishing is, has become almost a buzzword. Um, just a couple of, I mean, a couple of things on that is um, we have to make very clear that when we talk about human flourishing, we do so within a Christian theology and not... Uh, Aristotle talks about human flourishing and, and the Greeks and the virtue ethics and so on, but they don't mean the same thing. 
And so we have to make sure we are doing justice to the proper worldview structures and theological teaching of the Bible versus something else, right? I'm sure within every view there's some notion of human flourishing, right? So biblically, I mean, human flourishing starts with creation, right? I mean, we are made in God's image. We are made for him. We are made in covenant relationship. We, I mean, that's where human flourishing is to live out the purpose of our existence, right? It's to live out all that we are as image bearers uh, in God's good world and so on. Now, of course, with the fall, right, uh, human flourishing is complicated, right? Uh, we're under judgment. But, I mean, I think if you uh, pick up rightly, I mean, as you come to the full salvation that we have in Christ, you know, obviously there's, there's the not yet, but we are... I like to. I think I took it from one of Francis Schaeffer's associates or so. In salvation, we're made more human again, right? I mean, we are now by the Spirit brought into faith, covenantal union with Christ, because of His work. Uh, we are remade after His glorified humanity. I mean, all of this tied to the work of the Spirit in Christian salvation, tied to what the church is, and so on. Uh, we are now beginning to live out, not fully, but beginning to live out the very purpose of our existence uh, because of him, right? And that's what human flourishing is. Human flourishing in the broadest sense is to fulfill the very purpose of what we're made for, is to love the God, or Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbors, ourselves, to carry out our task as image bearers, as representatives of, of the Lord, to rule over this world. I mean, and it will be ultimately realized in the fullest extent in the new heavens and new earth, right? So, I mean, that's how I would work with, with human uh, flourishing. Now, and just a, one comment about uh, typology and that. We would have to talk about, you know, what we think is actually typological. I don't think axe heads are typological. Um, so I'm not using it in that way. Uh, I'm using it in very specific ways that are specific patterns that are, you know, driven through, uh, you know, the, the covenantal unfolding, uh, later authors picking it up, and so I do think as you get to Christ in the New Covenant, there is always this greater sense, but we'd have to look at examples of it, and I would want to look at prophets, priests, kings, sacrifice temples, uh, rest themes, uh, you know, and so on. But maybe. I would say on the um, human flourishing that, um, you know, I'd agree with what Steve said on, on a number of these things, um, that what one has to remember is where we are in the storyline. And, uh, you know, what I'm emphasizing is a holistic salvation. And some people have said, well, if you believe that, then why don't you hold to a prosperity gospel? And the answer is because those people are wrong. <laughs> and why are they wrong? Because they don't understand, the first of all, the inauguration of the kingdom and the fact that we walk in the pattern of Christ. This is 1 Peter 2. I mean, he called, set an example that we should walk in his steps, and this is an example of suffering. There's suffering. I mean, we walk the walk of the cross. We live in the cross and the resurrection, and we'll, until he returns, until we're in glory. Uh, we are, you know, Paul says an amazing, you know, passage in Colossians 1 that he is... He is uh, filling up the sufferings of Christ, you know, in his own experience. What a, what a statement that is. Now, is that human flourishing? 
Well, uh, I think that what it has to do with the fact is that there is a shalom. This is Matthew, I mean, sorry, John 14, you know, peace I leave with you. You know, my peace I give to you. There's a shalom, even though in the world you have trouble. There's going to be a time when there's no trouble with the world. We're not there yet. But that shalom begins in the renewal that overcomes sin. That's, that's, the, that's the thing, that the whole thing in the, in the story of the Bible is the, is the problem of sin and the, the, the regeneration, the sanctification, the working of the Spirit, the new anthropos of Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, that, is, that renewal is, is a flourishing that begins in the individual and it manifests itself then in the community, in the church, in the koinonia. But these koinonia people may suffer greatly from the world. You know, that's, you know, now, but this is a multidimensional thing. You know, some people, this is why, I think it's important to distinguish Israel and the church. Israel had certain promises regarding their material shalom and their national shalom and, and so on that was given to them as a nation. That hasn't been given to us as the, the, as the church. It's not given to any Gentile nation. You know, here we get in this whole thing about, you know, what about, you know, is our country the new Israel? And, you know, we have all the promises to our country. No, we're a Gentile nation. Did you know that? <laughs> so, you know, when Paul says in Romans 11 that the blessing has gone to the Gentiles, that there's this blessing, you know, that's gone to the Gentiles, the, the blessing is undefined. You know, he places us in a place of blessing, and we're experiencing a number of things. A lot of that is probably better handled in Scripture from the standpoint of wisdom uh, rather than going back to the Mosaic Law. Uh, wisdom includes law instruction, but it, it's, it's broader than that. And there's a lot of wisdom, and Christ is our wisdom. And the wisdom of Christ changes our relationships even with the world. So there's even a peace, you know, Paul says, I mean, Peter says in First Peter that live in such a way that the Gentiles, you know, can't say anything bad about you. <laughs> they do, they do it in ignorance. So all those are dimensions that have to be taken into account, I think, in trying to answer the question. Mm -hmm.